Hi, I'm Andrew, and welcome to the Reviewer 2 Dice Geoengineering podcast. Today, we're here to talk about uh, the paper in ESNT, which is Alkalinity Generation Constraints on Basalt Carbonation for Carbon Dioxide Removal at the Gigaton Per Year Scale, and that's by Benjamin Tutelo et al. Uh, welcome to the show, Benjamin. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. I'm happy to talk about this paper with you. Excellent. An, an unusually professional introduction for myself, but don't be fooled. We will not be carrying on in the same vein. So okay. um, your, the paper title is long and boring. Um, what's it all about? Yeah, so this paper, what we're trying to do in this paper is think about carbon dioxide removal coupled to, so you're thinking direct air capture, for example, of CO2, coupled to injecting that deep into basalts underlying the oceans. Um, and in those this permeable basaltic aquifer system, that CO2 that you inject will slowly or quickly react with the basalts that are there uh, and form solid carbonate minerals, things like calcite or dolomite or anchorite. And so this is a, you know, it's been proposed for quite some time as a, um, a climate mitigation strategy. And so what we're trying to do in this um, paper in particular is think about if we're going to scale this up to be, you know, at the gigaton per year scale, what are the differences that we can expect at the at this very extremely large scale where we're actually making a dent in, in annual global CO2 emissions uh, versus the, the demonstrations that have been done um, to date, for example, in in the carb fix project in Iceland, where they've injected you know smaller amounts of CO2, and there's another project in in Washington State where they've again injected smaller amounts of CO2. So we have these demonstration projects that have shown that it's effective, and we also have lots of laboratory experiments that have shown that it's effective. But this paper is then taking that a step further. So if we're going to upscale it to a gigaton per year scale, how how effective is it going to be? Is it going to be different than what has been demonstrated or not? And so that's what we show, and ultimately. The paper and the simulations in the paper show that it is, is much less efficient than those smaller scale um, pilot scale projects and experimental projects, and we can get into the reasons why, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't do it. So it is still effective, it's just less effective than, than has been demonstrated to date. Um, that was um, quite uh, brief and intense and comprehensive, um, <laughs> but there's a couple of things I'd like to query. So firstly, I've got this theory, right, that all of these minerals that you're sort of talking about, uh, you know, I, I, I just think geologists make these up as they go along. I don't, I, I've got this, uh, you, you hear about things like dolomite and stuff like that. I, I, does anyone know what they actually are? Or, or are they just, you just come up with a, a mineral <laughs> sounding name every time that someone asks you about a rock and you just assume that they'll forget it and you don't need to actually, <laughs> no one ever checks whether, whether it's a real rock. Yeah, you know, I so I my background, my undergraduate was in engineering. So I came and I sort of was in the same place as you whenever I started my PhD in geology, where people were talking about, you know, dolomite or um, clinopyroxene or olivine, and I had no idea what they were talking about. But ultimately, there, you know, there's International Mineralogical Association that defines minerals. And so you can say something about their crystal structures and their chemical compositions, and then they get a specific name. And then there's a bunch of minerals that are sort of grandfathered in that have strange names that aren't really uh, approved by the International Mineralogical Association, but people still refer to them. Um, thinking of things like labradorite, for example, you know, where you're just like, well, what is that? <laughs> and you have to sort of look it up to understand. Okay, what it so is. Yeah. The, is there any kind of system for this? Like, so if I've got dolomite, can I work out 
I mean, obviously, the, the Dolomite, Dolomite comes from the Dolomite Mountains, right? And that's the, the sort of what you might call the kind of type specimen, if you're talking about a fossil uh, of, of the rock, right? Well, now, it actually comes from a French guy named Dolomieu, right? Who then I think then is associated with the Dolomite Mountains as well, right? But so, yeah, it is there. But yeah, you have a, a type okay, example so that's, of what that so, is. So, okay, but so the link is from the surname rather than a rock that's found in the Dolomite Mountains. Is that what you're saying? Even yeah, less but I think the, I, I think the Dolomite Mountains are named after that guy as well. I think it's a it's a it's one of those things where it all goes back to a single guy named Dolomieu. Okay, that's bizarre. So you managed to, it was so important. You managed to have an entire mountain range named after him. Because normally it's the other way around, isn't it? You come from a place and you get named after the place. But this guy had the had an entire mountain range named after him. That's impressive. That's well, it's like back in exactly. those days, uh, you know the geological societies and these you know the the learned people they sort of named everything after themselves right i'm sure that, okay. that, oh, yeah. i'm obviously living in a wrong period uh, exactly. otherwise it'd be be andrew everything exactly. um, right um so basically what you're saying from from that is that you can't get from the name of a rock you can't work out what it is by the name there's not a kind of law it's not like a, oh. the linnaean classification system for um for species and you can't sort of um, go through it and determine what something is based on um, the the name. So, you know, if you've got, um, I'm trying to think, uh, so uh, Gorilla, 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 for example, is a, like a, is a Linnaean classification system. It's probably one of the least logical ones available, but the idea being that it gives you this sort of genus and species and stuff like that. So there's some sort of, there's some sort of pattern to this classification system that means that you can actually work out what things are. But are you saying with rocks, it just doesn't work like that? There's no... Uh, it does sort of... kind of work that way, but the names never really make any sense. The, the names never indicate to you what it is, right? For example, there's there's groups of minerals. There's the clays, for example. There's zeolites. There's uh, inosilicates, all these things, right? And then they have subgroups, but you would never know based on, for example, you would never know that dolomite is a carbonate based on its name right so it, it isn't okay. like so, gorilla gorilla or llama, llama. so there isn't some great system that i'm just not um i don't know anything about it, it just that there is no logic it's just a random series of made-up stuff that like sort of music track names you can't really work out what genre of the music track is by the name of the track it could be hip-hop or drum and bass or heavy metal and it's just no way of working it out from the name right it's kind yeah of like i would that. say except for very rare exceptions for example there's a mineral that's sodium bicarbonate and it's called nacolite and its name is spelled n-a-h-c-o yeah right? so yeah okay, have, okay but there's very yeah, rare exceptions <laughs> okay no, mostly right. it's just well, fine. yeah you, you've you've certainly um uh, appeased my uh, intellectual self-doubt about my inability to get my head around um uh, mineralogy so um the the other point i wanted to to, to pick pick up on was the the um the basalts you say the basalts are under the ocean now obviously the basalts are mainly um oceanic crust they're not continental crust with some exceptions so you get the large igneous provinces you know around the deck and traps and stuff like that you also get mid-ocean ridges like around iceland where you have basalt rocks that are in the surface so they're certainly not you know rare on the surface that the, the, there are quite a lot of surface um rocks that are um uh, basalt basaltic in origin but mainly the continents are formed of granite are formed of granitic rocks that's correct, is it not? 
Yeah, so I mean, there's there's a separation between what we call mafic rocks, which are basalts, and felsic rocks, which are granites, right? And so the continents are are broadly granitic or felsic in composition, it, and then so is, the fel is feldspar is feldspar a felsic rock, or is that just another example of random names? Uh, the <laughs> there are feldspars in both mafic and um, felsic oh, rocks. Nice and nice and confusing. Okay, fine. Thank yeah. you very much, feldspar. But it's a different. It's different flavors of feldspar. So you get the plagioclase feldspars in the mafic rocks, and you get the alkali feldspars in the granitic rocks. Although you sometimes get <laughs> get them crossing into each other. The geology is just annoyingly unsystematized and complicated. I can't get my head around it and I'm very <laughs> glad I never studied it and they all just look the same as well um so you go around I'm not even like I can't even other than weird stuff like olivine that's green and and you know things like sapphires and stuff you, you you can't you have to be really good at looking at rocks to be able to tell any difference between rocks in my experience so um this you get this basaltic rock and it's um, it's mainly found under the sea right because uh it's slightly heavier and so the way I look at it it's like beer uh in a beer you have like a foamy head of beer right and that's like your granite and then you have the bits of beer where you could just see directly onto the the liquid and that's kind of like your basalts right um and so you have these big fluffy continents that float around on top of the um the the you know the the, the broader sort of basalt like layers that are the the oceanic crust is that is that model kind of okay-ish or is it completely stupid no it's i think i mean i would think of it sort of more like ice floating on water but it's the same idea where you have less dense material which is the the granitic rock sort of floating on the more dense mafic and ultra mafic rocks yeah um, it's kind of area. weird to think of as sort of floating on a sea um isn't it uh like that but yeah when you put it like that but it's um but it's not it's not quite um People think of the earth as being full of liquid rock, don't they? Because they see liquid rock coming out of volcanoes. But my understanding is it's actually quite, it's more like a, a very sort of thick gel. Is that correct? Yeah. So the, the earth's mantle, right, is predominantly, or at least the upper mantle, is predominantly composed of the mineral olivine, which also turns up in basalts, as it turns out. And at the temperature and pressure conditions of the upper mantle, it does flow, but it flows very slowly, like at the rate at which so, fingernails So why is it runny when it comes out of volcanoes? I don't get don't yeah, so that's actually a good question. That comes back to the basalt idea, right? So at the mid-ocean ridges, you have the, the ridges are pooling apart from one another, right? So you have depressurization happening, right? And so this hot rock is sitting there in the mantle, right? And you've depressurized it, sort of pop the cork, and you're now melting the, the peridotite that's down there. So that's the, the mantle. You're melting the mantle, and the melt that you get is much more uh, able peridotite. to move. Peridotite? You said it was olivine a minute ago. What, what's changed? Yeah. No, so yeah, peridotite is the mantle, right? And so you have that's the olivine rich rock. It's it's basically 90, 95% olivine. Uh and oh, again, right, okay. So the another rock, name, a rock being like a rock being made up of multiple types of minerals. It's like a kind of a mix, like soup, right? Yeah. And so peridotite gets its name from peridote, which is another name for olivine. So I know we're infinitely confusing you with the mineral names right now, but yeah. And so when you melt peridotite, you get the a concentration of certain elements into the milk. And that melt is is much runnier, right, than the mantle itself, and that's basalt, right? And so that's why you, when we see volcanoes, for example, Etna, that's um, erupting right now, you see like these dramatic um, lavas coming out. That stuff is much more liquid-like than the mantle itself because it's been and melted, that, it's been depressurized. Yeah. So the, so it melts. So it so that's weird because like if you skate over ice, the pressure causes the ice to melt and the skates become slippy because you're 
skating on a little layer of water that's a pressure melt. But what you're saying is this works kind of ass backwards when you're doing it in rock, that when you pressurize the rock, they become more solid. They sort of stick together like a, yeah, I uh, think like a quick, what, quicksand type thing. It's right? much easier to think about water, right? But I think water is the one that's backwards, right? Water is the only substance oh, right, where, okay. the, where the solid is less dense than the liquid, right? Most most of the time, if you have a solid, oh, right. I get it. it should yeah. be more so, dense than the liquid. Yeah, so it's a density effect. So as you add pressure to the system, then it tries to get to a lower energy state, and it does that by forming the solid form, right? Whereas liquid, because it works, uh, it water because it works backwards, it forms the lower energy state under pressure um, by melting rather than freezing. That's right. That's exactly what's happening. Ah, with the ice okay. Yeah. Well, that's good. You're, you're clearing up a, a, a wide variety of misconceptions I held about geology. That's, <laughs> you, that's a, this is what I mean about the twenty-minute meanders. This is a, what this is what we're all it's what we're here for. Fair um, enough. So you've got the basalt that's um, sometimes under the crust, but more commonly under the ocean. Um, that um, is um, solid-ish when it's um, uh, under pressure and then liquid-ish when it's not under pressure. Um, and yeah, it's also blow... going to be hot, right? So it, once it erupts under the seafloor, it, uh, it cools very quickly because the ocean, the bottom of the ocean is about two degrees Celsius, right? So it, it cools and it yeah. forms these things we call pillow basalts, right? So yeah, I was big... literally going to say it's pillow lava, yeah. isn't it? Um, yeah, that's exactly When right. you get it because it erupts, like immediately hits the um the cold water and then and, and so you get like a crustal freezing and it doesn't boil because if it's at deep layers then it, it the pressure of the water is too high to boil so even though you're contacting this super hot rock it it doesn't really go anywhere right yeah uh, the water so at least the water at the very seafloor doesn't boil but deeper in the system we get phase separation it's not really called boiling because you're often above the critical points so you're in this sort of weird zone where it's not really boiling anymore but they are essentially boiled fluids so we get Basically, like at, at places like um, the East Pacific Rise, which is down near Mexico, or the Juan de Fuca Ridge, which is right off the western coast of Canada here, um, we get these fluids, these phase-separated fluids that have essentially been boiled deep in the system that have much lower salinity, so almost like tap water-like salinity than the ocean water. And we also get a, a conjugate brine that has much, has all those salts left behind. Oh, right. So you can't you can't retain the salt in supercritical water. Is that correct? Well, it's the same as boiling, right? So if you if you boil off an entire pot of water, the salt sits at the bottom, right? You get you get all that stuff sitting at the bottom. That's essentially the same thing that's happening. Ah, oh, but 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 it's something. But even in super, supercritical liquids, that happens. Yeah, it's, fluid, it's, I didn't realize that. The the partitioning isn't like a, as effective as it is at room temperature and you know atmosphere or at sorry okay. boiling at, at atmospheric pressure. But it's it's a similar thing where you get salt partitioning between phases. That's fascinating. All completely irrelevant to your paper, but nevertheless, very interesting. Um, and, and that's what I'm here for. And I enjoy doing this because I get to learn, I get to ask clever people about things that I've always wondered about, but didn't know and was too lazy to Google or look up on Wikipedia. So you've, you've, you've satisfied my curiosity. That's excellent. So basically what you're saying, is you take your carbon dioxide that you've obtained from direct air capture or carbon capture and storage or whatever, you blow it down the hole in the ground and your paper is focused on what happens to it when it's doing, um, when you're doing this sort of stuff at scale. So if you blow a bit of carbon dioxide down a small hole, like they did in carb fix in Iceland, then it reacts with the rock pretty quickly. So you, you get a number of different um, uh, processes. You get um, some of it sits as a supercritical fluid. Some of it gets pore trapped. So it's um, it's not sitting there as a bulk fluid. It's kind of like soaked, like water soaked into a tea bag. So it doesn't really readily come out. And then you get some 
chemical reaction where the, the carbon dioxide actually uh, physically reacts with the rock and, and, and then it ceases to be carbon dioxide anymore and it's, it sort of sits there, um, uh, uh, you know, forever trapped as the part of the rock forever and ever and ever, like it's married to it, right? Um, uh, with no possibility of divorce. So um, that's your kind of ideal state, right? You want to get rid of the, the rock, uh, the carbon dioxide into the rock and so you want to try and promote this mineralization to the greatest extent possible. That Do I have that kind of broadly, that con conceptual system broadly correct? Right. Yeah. The Ultimately, the at CarbFix, and they've, you know, it's an unimpeachable success at CarbFix, but they, they injected CO2 and about 95% of it mineralized within two years, which is incredible. So this is incredibly durable storage mechanism for CO2 that you've now taken. In their, in their case, it wasn't out of the atmosphere. It was out of, uh, you know, geothermal wells. But in any case, they demonstrated that that CO2, once it's down there, is going nowhere, which is great. And so, so that, what was, we a, that was a sort of a big splashy headline, wasn't it? Because the, the point is that it wasn't, I mean, it wasn't a previously obvious that that was going to happen. And we thought that that might happen, but we didn't know that it would. And what CarbFix showed us is that pretty much the best conceivable result that they could ever expected to get happened and you know we we've, we've got a situation where the um uh you know 95 percent you kind of almost don't care about the margin right the extra five percent unless it all comes out and gases the operators and they all die from carbon dioxide asphyxiation you pretty much don't care so even if all of the rest of it came out because it's such a good um fractionation that you're getting that you kind of cease to care about the margins thereafter, right? Right. And that's, I mean, it's 95% over two years, right? So perhaps if you waited a little bit longer and monitored further, it's not as if all that CO2 necessarily came back up. Maybe it was still mineralizing, essentially. So I think- Yeah, yeah. or it might have just been poor trapped or whatever, but what they found is it basically disappeared. Now, my, my understanding from what you're saying is that you're basically saying, well, not so fast. Don't assume that you can then take that poxy little experiment and scale it up to the you know, the gargantuan scale of the stupidity of the fossil economy and, and then expect it all to work out magically and be okay because it, it just ain't that simple. That's, That's broadly right. your kind of thesis, yeah. right? And in this, so, yeah, so I guess what, so currently CarbFix is injecting about 12,000 tonnes of CO2 per year. If we want to do a gigaton or a billion tonnes per year, so right, that would essentially be 2% of the total annual greenhouse gas emissions from the earth, that's a 10 to the fifth time scale up of carb fix, right? So that's 100,000 times more than one single carb fix. Yeah, and yeah that's what we but, wanna I mean, talk about. Like there's, there's, two, there's two ways of doing this, right? You can either build, like drill a big hole in the ground and blow a lot of carbon dioxide down it, which is one way of doing it. Or the other thing you can do is drill lots of little holes and then put the carbon dioxide down those various little holes. Now, the the... Talk to me about the scaling up effect. I mean, one would imagine there's some kind of combination of that. You know, I'm not expecting there to be one single massive hole in which all of humanity's carbon dioxide gets blown. That seems a bit unrealistic. But equally, you'd expect that CarbFix is probably not the biggest thing that you can build. So what kind of combination of those scaling effects do you get when you're scaling up CarbFix? I mean, are we talking everything that's built is going to be 10 times the size of CarbFix or 100 times the size of CarbFix? And the rest is done by numerical scaling or, um, you know, are we talking about things that are sort of gargantuanly highly scaled and doing things that are tens or hundreds of thousands of times the size of CarbFix? Yeah, so that's a, that's a great question. So the idea is CarbFix is sort of an end member that works really well, right? But if we want to scale that up to the much larger scale, we need to think about 
you know, of course, putting holes in the ground all over in the basaltic oceanic crust around the world, that's, that's fine. Uh, but then also the other thing that Carbfix does that is unique um, is that they inject, co-inject the, the CO2 at, with water, right? So the CO2 is essentially dissolved in water. And so we know from enhanced weathering experiments that you don't get a lot of result if you don't co- you, 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 if you just get butter and grind up throw it in the field, nothing really happens to it, right? Because it's got to be hot and it's got to be wet before anything happens. That's broadly correct, is it not? Well, so I guess the other, the other way to think about it is if we're just injecting supercritical CO2, right? So we're, we're essentially gaseous or liquid CO2 into the basalt, the basalt or the CO2 must first dissolve into the water and then react with the basalt and then make carbonate minerals. And so what they've done is skip that dissolving step by just dissolving it on the way down the borehole. But why, but why does that happen? I mean, like the, car, the carbonate mineral, is the water actually involved in a reaction or is it just a solvent? Yeah, the water is invo involved in the sense that it is the solvent, right? So it is the medium through which the CO2 first dissolves. The water then dissolves the basalt. But, right? it's, but, it's, but if it's supercritical CO2, then it's a liquid anyway, or behaves as liquid. So why? Yeah, it but it is CO two itself is a very lousy solvent. Right? It's very, uh, it's good at dissolving some things, but it's not good at dissolving basalt, for example. Right? And so, right. so the, the the water is actually dissolving the, the basalt to an extent, right? Yeah. So the water dissolves both the CO two and the basalt, right? So, but so I mean, it, this, the, help me with that. So the what water? If you get a lump of basalt, right? So you get a, sort of a, a big sort of shield volcano. Um, uh, that you like you get in Hawaii and, and, and then you, 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 you get some rain and, and you put it on it it doesn't dissolve like bath salts does it so what, to what extent is this dissolution process is that a real thing I'm, I'm trying to understand how does that how does this thing actually dissolve bath salt because it doesn't it doesn't dissolve does it I mean it does, the basalt dissolves, right? It just is not very soluble right so I think I like to ask this question to my aqueous geochemistry students like how much how much water do you think is in seawater versus how much salt is in seawater? Do you have any any idea what that is? I think salt, the uh, sea is about sort of three percent salt, isn't it? Yeah, three percent, three point two or something like that. So essentially, nine, still ninety seven percent of the seawater is is just water, right? So yeah, and that's like that's one of the most concentrated substances most of us can think of, right? So you need a lot of water to dissolve a little bit of the salt. Essentially, is what I'm I'm getting at, and you need a lot okay. of water to dissolve a little bit of CO two. And carb fix, they figured it out that it's essentially oh, about so, thirty well, or thirty five. So let me so let me explain back to you what I think you're explaining to me. So okay. that what the basically that carbon dioxide reacts with the water that with the with the basalt that's in solution. And the basalt is really not very soluble in water, but, 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 what happens as soon as that um, basalt dissolves, so it, then you've got a concentration gradient because the bit of basalt that's reacted with the, um, uh, with the rock um, basically doesn't have any more basalt in it. And so the, the basalt will then become more soluble because you've got the concentration gradient effect, right? So as, as soon as that reaction happens, then you get the um, the basalt then becomes more um, uh, the, the, the the basalt becomes more soluble because every molecule it reacts then gets like ripped out of the system and replaced by another molecule that has yet to react. Right? Yeah, yeah, that's about right. I think there's one added complication is that there's the the solubility of both. The, the basalt itself and the carbonate minerals are strongly dependent on pH, right? So we inject CO2, 
in a supercritical state, it buffers the BH down to something like four and a half or so, right? Okay, and so, so it's, whenever, like a, yeah. it's a bit like fizzy pop, right? So the, when, when you drink fizzy pop, it's a bit acid. Uh, it doesn't taste like normal water. It's like it tastes noticeably different. It's not just a bubble feeling that makes it different. It's that you get a very strong chemical effect as well from the pH difference, right? Yep. Yeah. And in those solutions, um, carbonates, particularly in silicates, so the basalts, are much more soluble. So you need much, essentially, whenever you're down at these low pHs, four and a half or so, you need to dissolve a lot more basalt to make the same amount of carbonate minerals because they're much more soluble. Okay. Um, so you've got um, this uh, hole in the ground and you put something akin to sort of Perrier water, if that's even a thing anymore, down this hole in the ground. Um, and that is, um, it dissolves the basalt, the basalt that dissolves into this um, uh, water and CO2 mix then um, starts to react, the, the basalt that, that, that dissolves into that starts to react with CO2, and you end up in a situation where you are, um, uh, you're, you're over a period of time, months, or, well, you know, it, it happens instantaneously, but it takes a long time for it, to all, for, for it all to react. But it basically just goes away because it's no longer the carbonate mineral anymore. Uh, it's no longer the CO2 anymore. It becomes carbonate mineral. And that's the end of it. It's no more, it's no more um, uh, CO2 than water is oxygen. The, the, the oxygen is a part of the water, but it doesn't, it doesn't have any characteristics that are similar to oxygen. You can't breathe water, right? Um, so that's the kind of terminal, terminal state. And that process happens over something around a couple of years. But, you know. Yeah, so and uh, that's the case in Carfix. And the, the point that we're trying to make in this paper is that we can't expect it to be so efficient at these large scales, because if we inject so much CO2 and we inject it in supercritical form rather than dissolved, then we have to wait for that CO2 to dissolve first off. But then also because of this high partial pressure of CO2, the carbonates are much more soluble. So we have to dissolve a lot more basalt to make the carbonates. And that's sort of the point that we're trying to make in this paper. But why does any of that matter? I mean, like, I don't really care, do I? I mean, if I've got a hole in the ground, I blow some CO2 down it, and eventually stuff happens and it doesn't come up. So what's the problem? That's, I totally agree with you. And that's my point is like, just because if we, so I think my, my biggest concern right now is that this technology works, right? But if everyone thinks it's going to work exactly as effectively as it has worked in Iceland, then we're all going to be sorely disappointed whenever it doesn't work that effectively, right? But that doesn't mean it's not going to work effectively over a longer time scale, essentially. Okay. So what is that longer time scale? I mean, if it's like 10 years, then no one's really going to care. But if it's like 10,000 years, then that's a bit more of a problem, right? Yeah. And I think that we have to, in this paper, we sort of normalize time to just to show sort of time scales rather than actually giving exact numbers for time. But we, yeah. I mean, it could be as high as, you know, centuries, right? Or it could be, you know, quicker, right? It depends on how, it depends on the injection regime, right? So how quickly you can dissolve the CO2 into the water in the aquifer. Okay. So what, I mean, right, what are the constraints on the system in terms of like how the speed, how, you know, to what extent is the speed an issue, right? Because two years to 10 years, pretty much don't care right doesn't make any difference okay two years to a hundred years you're probably thinking hmm well maybe the company that 
made the hole in the first place isn't going to be around to fix the problem because like you know there are some companies that have been around 100 years but an awful lot of them that don't make it so i'm going to be you know pretty cautious about um a process that takes 100 years if it needs careful monitoring and management if it's just a case of sitting there and waiting for it to happen and it's you know you don't really need to do anything then that's much less important right so talk talk, talk me through that so it helped me understand um you know what's happening here in terms of the um the the processes so does is there any risk to you know human health and society while this stuff is sitting there waiting to mineralize i mean like i guess it depends on where it is to a large extent doesn't it so if you've got um if you've got something that's you know in the middle of a housing state and something goes wrong with it it's pretty bad but if it's like 200 kilometers out into the continental shelf the worst case scenario is it just bubbles up a bit into the sea it you know you might kill a few fish but do you really care about it Probably yeah not in so, the grand scheme of things right so yeah you're getting great at the, the heart well. of the problem right so I think many of us now, especially here in Western Canada, but all around the world, right? We've been having forest fires. Like we're seeing the effects of climate change now. We have to do something now, right? So if we are able to start removing a gigaton per year of CO2 from the atmosphere and putting it into these basalts, and it maybe it takes 100,000 whatever years to, to mineralize, it's not in the atmosphere, right? So that's that's step number one. So this, the I guess point. Well, hang on, I said I said hundred years, and you said hundred thousand years. So no, I said a hundred or a thousand or whatever. So I, it's just oh, right, okay. Even if it takes longer than uh, these carb fix projects, it's still not going to be in the atmosphere for the next hundred or thousand or whatever years that it takes to mineralize. It's not going to be in the yeah, atmosphere so at all. Just to sort of paraphrase your argument, temporary storage is still storage. What I'm saying though is that my 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 argument is slightly different. My, my question is slightly different. Um, it's not that I don't agree with you that temporary storage is still storage. I get that that's a significant point and I'm not belittling or dismissing it. What I'm saying is that the, there are risks associated with the storage of carbon dioxide that are um, not trivial. So if it's basically in a, an extreme circumstances, if it's only stored you know, a, a few hundred meters below the surface and it's stored at great pressures uh, and in rock that's poorly proofed, then you can in theory have a situation where it, it could leak out and that can be pretty dangerous because there are plenty of examples of um, uh, situations where high pressure CO2 leaked out of natural systems or pipelines or whatever and created extremely toxic environments. So, so, so CO2 um, uh, has extremely deleterious effects on human health at even quite modest concentrations. And we, we don't think of it as a dangerous pollutant because it, you know, there's, there's a lot of it and it's everywhere in our natural environment, but at high concentrations, it will kill you almost instantly and and at, at, at even modest concentrations it, it has you know profound and dangerous effects on health right so your ability to flee a dangerous situation is massively compromised if you're dealing with very high levels of co2 in the environment because you basically you feel like you've held your breath for five minutes even if you know you're breathing normally right so if this stuff leaks out it's pretty deadly so to what extent is it likely that it would come out even if it's not mineralized? Yeah. So, uh, yeah. And so all that stuff you just said is very uh, important to think about, but it is totally, fortunately, irrelevant for this, you know, C4 CO2 storage, right? We inject CO2 or basalts carbonation. We inject the CO2 into the aquifer. So you have already about two and a half kilometers of seawater sitting on top of the, the bottom of the ocean, right? And then we're now down 
several hundred meters uh, below very impermeable sediments into the basaltic aquifer system. And then, so the CO2 gets injected into the basaltic aquifer, which is very highly permeable, but it, it tends to keep water in it for 10 so, so, so it's a sponge under the sea with a decent bit of cat rock over it that holds everything in. That's the kind of system that you're describing, right? That's right. And so it is mineralizing. It's And then eventually, if it ever does leak, right, and that would be a very catastrophic event would have to happen in order for that, if, for it to leak, uh, like then ultimately... Well, even I don't think an earthquake is very likely in these sorts of way off axis um, systems where it's very quiescent, essentially. But if that did happen, right, we ended up leaking CO2, then you're still below two and a half kilometers of ocean water, right? And bottom ocean water is about, you know, many orders of magnitudes uh, uh, undersaturated with respect to CO2. So, right, it has more places to dissolve. So ultimately, that CO2 would never see the light of day. Okay. Well, look, you're you're describing a somewhat ideal set of circumstances, right? Uh, and people could conceivably store the CO2 in nearshore deposits, uh, or, you know, on land, those kind of things, you know, that, that, that we have got terrestrial storage in some places. So um, uh, like in Germany, for example, I think they've done some terrestrial storage of CO2 in Germany. Yeah, so, we're doing it here in Canada as well, actually. Okay. So, I mean, you're, by, by concentrating on this ocean storage, you're almost sort of picking a kind of easy option, aren't you? It's the easy so, option, and it's I think it's uniquely scalable, right? Because these permeable aquifers are all over the the ocean basins, and also because we're doing this direct air capture, in in this case, the solid carbon technology that is this paper was part of, um, is we're using um, you know wind turbines, floating platforms to capture the CO two, right? So you're then sort of doing it all in 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 situ, right? You're doing it out at sea. You have a floating platform capturing it, in in, well, in I, a yeah, way. I, I, yeah, I get it. I understand. But the, the point that I'm making is that you, you, what I'm trying to do is to sort of tease out where you think this could go catastrophically wrong. And you're saying, well, you know, it probably won't go catastrophically wrong because this system is inherently robust and, robust and safe and stable. But what I'm saying is, well, you know, it may be, but there are lots of examples of systems that aren't inherently robust and safe and stable. And what happens to them? Right. So can you give me an does your paper give us any lessons as to what might happen in a situation where, you know, there was a, your people have chosen these um, storage locations a lot less carefully and there, there would be a lot more inherent risk to the, um, uh, to the uh, populace around because the, you know, the location of storage was much just inherently more prone to causing disasters if there was any kind of leak or, you know, I'm not, I'm not maybe leaks aren't the only issue, maybe that, you could get um, uh, earthquake formation because it's, instead of reacting, this rock, this, uh, the CO2 is sitting there at pressure and it was causing a, it was working like a fracking fluid, right? So th there may be other geological hazards that result from this storage, but you've, you've said basically your, your, your central point, as far as I'm able to tell, is that, well, it doesn't really matter if something goes wrong because it's in the middle of the sea, right? Um, and that doesn't matter for a variety of reasons. You know, it's in the middle of nowhere, but it's not just that. It's also about the fact that um, the overpressure um, uh, at the, even if the rock's completely fractured, you've still got enormous overpressure from the sea. So the material either dissolve or disperse or, um, uh, or just not come out at all because you've got, you know, a mile and a half of sea over it, right? But if, you, if, it, was, if, if, the, if it was done in a different location where it was inherently more vulnerable to problems with geological storage, the reservoirs are a lot less stable or it was a lot more harmful if they 
if, if an eruption occurs or a lot more seismically active or whatever reason, what does your research tell us that's useful about risks in less well-managed and less well-organized geological storage? Yeah, so this paper in particular doesn't really touch on that, but I, I mean, I guess I can comment more broadly on that because I've been working on CO2 sequestration in various environments for, you know, a decade now. I think the, you know, in these less uh, ideal scenarios where, for example, if we're injecting into shallow systems, right, and so that's, uh, if we had to, if, if the only basalt available to a certain, you know, um, state or, or province or whatever in the world is, is shallow basalts, then we sort of mitigate that potential leakage effect by doing what CarbFix does, by dissolving the CO2 before we inject it. So I think in all of those cases where I think that the, the storage or the, you know, the positive benefits of, of storing the CO2 or injecting the CO2 far outweigh any risks and risks okay, of leakage, well, let, I think are, let, are quite limited. Let, let me yeah. just, let me just sort of question and challenge that, right? So the, what we've seen in forest offsets is basically a complete sort of like frontier territory where anything goes, we do anything to make a buck. And, you know, a lot of companies, they just don't, they don't really care. They're not even trying to do a good job, right? So um, at least that's my impression of the market. Don't sue me, don't write in, don't care. Um, the, um, the, the point I'm making is what if we have sort of like cowboy storage companies that are doing this basaltic storage? You know, it, it, is it kind of child's play to make this stuff work? It, or, or, or is it, or, or could there conceivably be a class of, um, uh, uh, of um, systems that are so, um, uh, you know, inherently um, badly run and badly created and badly formed and everything bad that they would just be a dangerous disaster and there's just, you know, no way that you could um, fix them up and improve them and they could never be made, you know, right and safe and honest. Yeah, so I think you're hitting on one of the, the points that the, uh, the solid carbon team that I'm a part of is really thinking about a lot, which is monitoring, right? So how do you prove that you're doing what you're doing, right? So how do you prove that you are injecting CO2 and it is staying underground versus, um, you know, just some guy, some cowboy, some wildcat operation saying that they're doing it, but they're just taking the money and putting it in their pocket, right? And so we're, the, we're pursuing this in multiple avenues right now. One is by or I guess the, the most predominant one is by using um, technologies uh, based on geophysics, right? So using seismic um, observations to see the CO2, image the CO2 in the subsurface, and then also listen for it mineralizing in the basaltic aquifer, right? So we have- Listen for it mineralizing? How does that work? Yeah, so you put um, seismometers on the sea floor, or you know, if you're in a continental setting, you put them on the, the surface of the continent. And we, you have, there's a very, they're very small micro earthquakes, right? And you see, or what you hear uh, in the, the seismometers, in the seismic uh, signal is, is um, opening, but then not closing. So typically an, a typical earthquake will open and close, right? And it'll, or it'll Like close. a fracking type process, right? So yeah. you're, it's the equivalent of putting a prop in, right? Yeah, and so this, in this case, if you mineralize a, a fracture- Can you make open. a noise? Can you make a noise like, <laughs> like CO2 mineralizing? Because I would love to hear what it sounds like. I, I always I'll be very it would quiet like a, while you pretend to be a rock mineralizing. I always thought it would sound like a pop, like pop, like that, but I have actually no idea what it would sound like. Excellent. So, um, right, well, that's, that's good enough for us. So you've got the CO2, it's mineralizing. You hear the sounds of opening and not closing, and that's the sound of this- mineralization occurring as the as, as the pore space cracks open and then turns to rock and doesn't close again because it's got this kind of propent type um 
material that forms. It's unlike a normal propellant because the propellant's a powder that's suspended in a liquid and it, and it forms, it sort of jams into the pore space. But that doesn't happen with CO2 but it, that, because that, the material sort of forms in the pore space. It doesn't, it doesn't get inserted into the pore space. It forms in situ, right? Um, yeah, it is. So I mean, there's this you're... thing, the concept that we like to think about, in, at least in some of the work that I do, is called the force of crystallization. So that carbonate is so oversaturated, it wants to crystallize so much that it's able to exert a force on the rock and crack the rock, right? Crack it open, but then it can't close again because now that mineral is in, in can, the crack. Can you think of a sort of a process in your kitchen or home that is similar to that kind of process forming? Because I want to understand that, you know, by getting an idea of what in my kind of kitchen would be um, happening in a similar way. Yeah, I think that uh, this isn't really in your kitchen, but the thing that I often think of and has been you know, shown as being analogous is the like the spalling that happens to old concrete buildings, especially in places where we put salt on the roads, like the salt goes up into the, the sides of the buildings, right? And then it once that or the salt water you know soaks up by capillary forces into the you know the, the concrete on the building and then once that water dries out the salt crystallizes and it'll spall off the, the concrete from the building and that that's a very major concern in many parts of the world where they're where they're using salt in the road so that's that's the most analogous okay. process okay so you've got a process that's sort of breaking up um the the rock underneath a, a bit like uh um a freezing salty road would break up uh uh, a, a concrete bridge or something like that, right? So you've got a process not, not dissimilar from concrete cancer, right? Yep. Okay, that's cool. That's interesting. I never sort of thought of it like that. Now, I, I, I want to sort of turn back to this key question in my mind. It's like, you're talking about the rate limiting factor. So tend to sort of, in this sort of thing, you tend to sort of think in terms of orders of magnitude, right? So the you'd, you'd start off with, stuff that takes a day and it goes to you know months and years and stuff like that you're not talking about a day to two days and stuff like that so let's imagine that you've got this process that takes you know by your time scale quite a long time for whatever reason right um it, 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 what i think you're telling me is that it doesn't really matter anyway so what's the point of the paper why does anyone care uh, yeah, the point of the paper is that we need to manage our expectations we can't expect it to be instantaneous right that we're basically injecting CO2 that immediately mineralizes, right? If we expect that, then we're all gonna be sorely disappointed when we get to the gigaton per year scale. If we, right. on the other hand, manage our expectations and understand that it's gonna maybe take a bit, then we should all be happy with this result, right? So I think my biggest concern is as people begin, you know, as investors begin to get interested in this and governments can begin to get interested in this, if they believe it's gonna be instantaneous and it's not instantaneous, they're gonna be frustrated with the technology if they believe it might take some time and it does take some time or or by some magical well my, well, my question is why does it matter i mean to my, my my sort of sort of premise in this is that eventually it'll mineralize mineralize and it doesn't really matter whether it takes a day or a week or a month or a year or 10 years but as long as it happens in the end who cares uh i i think you and i are on the same page i think the the issue at hand is that if if we're all expecting it to happen very quickly and it doesn't, then people get upset, right? And that's, I think it's managing expectations. But, as the, but, surely, but surely the issue with mineralization is that the, the, the reason that mineralization is appealing is it's permanent, okay? But the, the, the speed of mineralization is not its sort of key selling point, right? You don't, you don't mineralize stuff because you want them to do something in a hurry. You mineralize it because you want to do it properly. So what I'm a bit puzzled by is why 
people are bothered about the timescales here. I, mean, I, like, I would argue that, uh, you know, I think, again, you and I are on the same page in terms of if, it, if we want the CO2 out of the atmosphere, this is how you do it, right? It doesn't matter how long it takes. Um, but we're all in this idea, this culture, where, you know, we're, we're if, if, the C, if, for example, the CO2 doesn't even mineralize over our lifetimes, right? How do we know it actually is going to mineralize at all, right? And so everyone sort of wants that, that quick return. And I think that, that's sort of the, the potential issue there. But does it really matter? I mean, like the, the, the key question I've got is about, you know, the sort of um, uh, the, the, it, 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 the permanence still occurs, even if it's a long, if it takes a long time. The way I look at it, it's like, it's like kind of gets, getting seated on a train. You know, the train's still moving along, even if you have not got to your seat, right? So the, it doesn't stop you getting to your destination just because you, shuffling along and putting your suitcase away you're still the train is still traveling right so with this it, with this approach you know you know that you're eventually going to get this mineralization occurring if there's no you know particular inherent risk in the meantime as you're waiting for this mineralization to happen then what's the worry about the delay is it that people think that if it doesn't happen quickly it will never happen or do they think there's some kind of inherent danger that exists during the time when you're waiting for it to happen what 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 what's the point of concern that's what i'm trying to drill down to yeah uh, i think all of those things that you listed right so i guess there is you know the the perception of risk right if it's not immediately mineralizing then okay well then what is it doing right is it going to take some time to to mineralize what what can it do during that time right um and and on the other side of things right there's just this it's very attractive optically to see carbonate like uh, we just went and drilled this core you know one year after we injected co2 and we can show you that and it's all gone one, right yeah yeah it is is that co2 right it's here it's solid it's not going back in the atmosphere and i think there's there's a bit of salesmanship as well right so there's lots of proposed technologies for climate mitigation and, and part of that you know you got to sell the technology as as being extremely effective and if you're sort of just saying well it's <laughs> like it's going to happen, I promise, right? Then you have sort of an issue there, but I don't think that is, um, you know, it's not in any way detracted. I, as I say, that you know, the carb fix and carb fix two, for that matter, are unimpeachable successes. They've shown that it works. It's just when we get to larger scales, it's not going to be as effective or as efficient. Okay. So you, so you're saying that kind of like as a PR stunt, you want it to work quickly, but there's not necessarily any geophysical or human risk that comes from it not working quickly. You just think it's kind of nice if you can show it working quickly and then people will just think that you're, you know, not lying to them because they can see it happening quickly, right? That's the That's right. Saying, and, I, right? and I think importantly, CarbFix and the Wallula project in Washington have shown that it does happen quickly. So I think that's no longer a concern. Okay. Well, that's interesting because I I hadn't really ever sort of had the chance to thrash this out. But let me let me kind of get to the meat of your paper for me. So what you're what what you're trying to do here is to say, well, even if you think on a on a personal level or a um, you know on a, a, a social level or whatever that that it's not actually that important how quickly it occurs, what 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 were the limits that you found as a result of your research? What you know, how slow was it, and what affected how slow it was, and why should anyone care? Uh, yeah, so 
ultimately the, the there's two limiting steps, right? One is CO2 dissolving into water. And it's not that that reaction is slow. That reaction is very fast, right? We all know that from our soda streams or whatever, you know, making fizzy water, the CO2 dissolves quite quickly and it tastes a lot different quite quickly. It's, it's the transport limitation, right? So that we need to bring in fresh water that doesn't have any CO2 in it to dissolve the CO2 and then move that water away, right? And there's there's lots of implications or, or issues with relative permeability, right? Once you have CO2 in the pore space, that rock is much less permeable to the, the water than it was previously, right? Um, then, so, but, okay, so that's there, right? But once you get the CO2- Oh, dissolved, right, so the rock, the rock sort of turns from a spongy kind of rock to being a kind of solid type rock as a result of this process, is that right? It, no, so its bulk permeability is actually, it remains fairly constant. I, I think the CarbFix2 project has shown that the bulk permeability and porosity doesn't change so significantly that it, it makes much of a difference. The issue is once you have CO2 in the pore space, water can't go through the CO2, right? So once it's there, it now has to go around the CO2 that's in the pore space in order to go the same Why? distance. Why? Why does that happen? I mean, like, well, if CO2 mixes in your soda stream, what stops it going into the pool space. The, the CO2 has been taken down there by water in, in the first place. So what stops it being able yeah. to get through? It's a good question. Pool? It's a, it's the concept of miscible and immiscible fluids, right? We know miscible fluids, the one that we're all most familiar with is alcohol, right? So alcohol and water are totally miscible with one another. No matter what proportion yep. you have, you can have hundred proof or 95 proof or whatever. And that's different whiskey. from a solution because the solution is limited, yeah. right? Yeah, and they're 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 immiscible, right? So there's you have CO2. CO2 is only sparingly soluble in water, and the rest of it they have to remain separated in phases. Yeah. So why would it fractionate out then? Fractionate out. I'm not sure I know what you mean. So what you're saying, you you basically send that down the CO2 and water together, right? And then you're saying that the, the CO2 somehow separates out from the water so that it then blocks the pore spaces and the water can't get in. So Oh, yeah. So, so in, in this case, at the gigaton per year scale, we're talking about sending in supercritical CO2. So a free phase, non-dissolved CO2. Well, why would you do that if it doesn't work? I mean, what's the point? <laughs> it, it'll work, right? The problem is it's... because So in order to do dissolved CO2, you need 35 tons of water for every ton of CO2. Obviously, in the ocean, we've got tons of water, but then you have to manage the pressure, right? So you have, if you're injecting a whole ton of water along with your CO2, you might, again, as you mentioned, begin to hydraulically fracture your rock. And so you have to alleviate pressure in the system by drilling another hole, right? So if we, okay. if we say we need a thousand million ton per year wells uh, in order to, to do this, right, that's quite expensive. But now, okay, so if just, we inject re just repeat that back, because it's a, a really important point. So what you're basically saying is that if you, if you, when carb fix work they're injecting a lot of water into the system um, that they were uh, using and, and you're looking at kind of roughly a sort of 40 to 1 volume difference if you put water down as well so you can do it with water but it's a right pain because you've got to put an absolutely enormous amount of down so if you're going to put let's let's imagine we take this to its logical conclusion we do the entire sort of um, anthropogenic carbon emissions that's sort of of the order of one to two trillion tons depending on when you stop emitting right then you're going to have to put in 40 trillion tons of water down a hole. So my, I, I kind of picture this as in terms of mountain ranges. So the sort of anthropogenic loading of, of um, carbon dioxide is sort of an appro approximately on a scale of entire mountain ranges, right? That's, that's roughly what we're looking at, is it not? Yeah. And so you'd be looking at putting 40 mountain ranges down a hole in the ground rather than one mountain range down the hole in the ground. 
Right. So you and... get to the point where, you know, that becomes sort of, you know, there are fundamental um, uh, barriers to be able to move that physical amount of material, right? Sure. And uh, the other problem is, of course, that like if you're doing that and you're not alleviating the pressure, the rock has a chance to fracture. And again, then all of the, the impermeability of the sediments <laughs> is a moot point because you've just cracked them. Right. So I think that's right. Okay. So you, you crack, you crack, you cap rock. And then, you know, what you've, what you've got left is just a big bag of broken gravel under the sea. Right. So, yeah. And so in Iceland, what they do is basically pull out the same amount of water that they inject. And that's, again, that's doable at, at the gigaton per year scale. So the water goes means, round and round and round, right? Yeah, but they essentially, what you would need to do is drill a second well, deep sea well, for every first well that you drill, <laughs> right? And so, and then yeah. you have to have a whole other set of pumping equipment, et cetera, all of these things, you know, you increase the cost, but you also increase the, you know, the number of things that can go wrong every time you, you drill a hole in the ground. Okay, yeah. so talk, talk me through it. What happens when you're dealing with, um uh when you're dealing with um the the injection where it's just the co2 on its own what happens in that scenario where you're not injecting you know a bunch of um additional water down because this is not the carb fix scenario it's very different from the carb fix scenario right that's right so what happens is you inject the co2 and what it does is it forms a plume right uh, a large supercritical so free phase non-dissolved co2 plume you know, and yeah. it'll, it's buoyant. It's more buoyant than the seawater, but at these pressures and temperatures, it's not that much more buoyant. It is still buoyant though. And it wants to rise up, right? So it'll try to rise up against that, as you call it, the cap rock, the sediments. And yeah. then it can only dissolve at the interface with the water, right? CO2 and water will make an interface with each other. And then the mass transfer is only across that interface, right? And, yeah. and so even though that reaction is very quick, what might be slow, is the introduction of new water to dissolve CO2. So once that water is saturated with CO2, it needs to go away and new water needs to come in to continue to dissolve the CO2. Okay, so, so you're going from a process which is fundamentally relatively quick to one which is creepingly slow because you're, you're, you're depriving the, the system of the water it needs to, to make the change, right? That's right. And so one way that we've wrote in this paper about how to get around that is what's known in the oil and gas industry as water alternating gas injection. So where you inject CO2, but then you stop it, stop the CO2, inject water for a while so that you end up having, you know, you know, separate um, plumes or concentric circles essentially of, of CO2 in the subsurface that are separated by water. So again, there's more interfacial area for which- So it's like a kind of, like a kind of gobstopper effect. So you, you inject a bit of water, a bit of gas, and you get this kind of like a kind of nested series of donuts, basically, where you've got um, uh, a spreading plume of water, and then inside that you've got a spreading plume of gas, and then inside that you've got a spreading plume of water. And so there's also, it, it's, 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 it's not perfectly mixed, but it's mixed in bits. That's right. And in terms of the reaction, like, I mean, how much of the water is, you don't, you don't need any specific amount of water for reaction, because it's not a reagent. So as long as there's some water around, the dissolution and you've got what you need is that correct that's right i mean there's limits right there's co2 is only so soluble all right so you need uh in order to dissolve all the co2 you need again that 35 or whatever tons of water per ton of co2 but there's a ton of water yeah but this. you don't need to dissolve <laughs> all at once do you that's, that's right that's very important yeah you don't need to dissolve it all at once so as long as you can as long as there's some water around you can, i mean you basically this process this process as the water that's there can can 
dissolve an infinite amount of CO2 because it, the CO2 just reacts, it leaves the system, and then the water's sort of back there doing its thing again, right? Yeah, so recycled. I guess it's you self, can it's sort of think of that recycled in the process yeah. in a, a very interesting steady state, right? Where you have, if you draw your engineering diagram, where here's the water, right? The bucket of water never changes, right? But the CO two comes in and goes out as carbonates. Yeah, I can see yeah. that. But but the, but the limitation on that is obviously that you've got this. The the the, the difficult bit isn't that the 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 reaction in the water because the, the water is pretty much the same, however much of it is there is. The issue is that. There's like a big queue of people. If you think about the water like a cinema and you're trying to show a film of re reaction, you can, it takes a certain amount of time to show that film um, to the people. And then you've got the other people queuing up outside the cinema that want to get in, right? And, and that might take you sort of 10,000 years to get to all the people that are queuing up to get in your cinema to watch this film about water reacting, right? Yeah, fair. Yep. Okay. So, um, so what you're basically saying is that there's a fundamental trade-off between a wet reaction where you put in sort of uh, 40 times more water than you um, than you put down CO2, which means that you've got, you're sending down perrier water as opposed to supercritical CO2. And then you're ending up as a result of that process um, with, um, uh, you know, a very nice situation to react. But if you put down a supercritical CO2, it becomes a lot harder because you're water limited and you've got this kind of log jam of, of um, uh, CO2 waiting to get to a water molecule so that it can react within, you know, it, it needs an aqueous environment to react. So your, your process, it's not just a small change in speed that comes from the, it being a dry process. It's an absolutely enormous change in speed um, that moves you from, you know, potentially from years to sort of tens of millennia, that kind of, potential Scott timescale is that is that do I basically understand that correctly yeah I mean you're putting the the brackets on the short and the long right and I don't like we might we have in my group folks working on those simulations to try and get an understanding of, of truly what that upper upper length yeah so you don't is. I mean you don't you don't you don't know the order of magnitude but would but, you say yes. that my rough my rough guesstimate is sensible you're looking that you're switching it from one regime to another regime and looking at a you know, a vast increase in time as a result of it. It's You're not looking at an increase change. in time. Yeah, it's not it's not small change, but how yeah. large of a change it is, is is an open question. I mean, is 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 sort of one year to ten thousand years, you know, a sensible estimate, or is it absolute nonsense? I've just made up as a guess. So the lower time scale has been shown right by Carbfix, right? One year is, is fine as a lower time scale. The upper limit, yeah. I think, ten thousand is probably a, a, an upper limit, but we're again, we're not sure. We're still working on that. Okay, direction. so it could be rather quicker, but you just don't know at this stage, right? Yeah, and it all depends, again, on the geometry of the injection and how much water you can get that CO2 to enact with. Just so the geometry okay. and the rates of injection, yeah. So we, we don't know of any problems that will occur in 10,000-year timescale, but hey, it's 10,000 years. It's a very long time. Quite a lot could go wrong, right? So you don't really want to be leaving stuff around for 10,000 years that's potentially risky because, you know, all kinds of things could happen tectonic uplift ice sheets scarifying the top rock off um uh you know may mining for things that we can't imagine that people might want to dig out of the ground at the moment but they might do in you know who, who would have known a few years ago that we we're going to need billions of tons of lithium right so we didn't know that we were going to need that so there's a lot that could change on the ten thousand year time scale that we would have to worry about that we won't have to worry about in say a century right that's right. And so that's, again, obviously all efforts should be made to sort of make it happen as quickly as possible.
But again, there are fundamental mass transport limitations that yeah, that we have and that's what's co causing the problem. So where does this sort of threshold lie? Is it is it purely just a result of this water that's the problem, or are there other effects that are causing a, a significant issue in terms of the speed at which this reaction can go ahead? Yeah. So. Um, once, once, let's say now you've got the CO2 in the water, right? Now there's, there's two potential things that can affect the, um, the rate, right? So you have basalt dissolution and the carbonate precipitation, right? And so basalt dissolution, the kinetic studies show that the, the dissolution rate of basalt at pH four and a half, which is again, where it's sort of buffered by this, this supercritical CO2 plume are approximately the same as they are at pH eight, right? So you know, in the carb fix project and in, you know, supercritical CO2 injection into the oceanic crust, the basalt dissolution rate should be approximately or within half an order of magnitude of each other the same, right? But the, the other part is the carbonate precipitation. Now, carbonate precipitation is, is rapid, right? So it's one of these minerals that people like to, to study in the lab because it, it precipitates fairly quickly and therefore we can do it. Yeah, you make it in school chemistry experiments, right? But you don't dissolve bustles in school chemistry experiments yeah. you'd, you'd be graduated before you go anywhere right <laughs> yeah well yeah that's right and and we make you know we make carbonates in our tea kettles all the time too right so that, okay. that's so you rate the... you rate li your rate limiting step is the um is the basalt dissolution not the carbonate formation so the, the, that's the, right the basalt comes quickly into solution uh it, sorry, it leaves solution quickly but it comes into solution quite slowly i mean could you not dispose i mean could you not tweak this process so You've got um, so one of the ways that you could um, uh, uh, dispose of carbon dioxide is to acid is to alkalize the ocean, right? So if you, for example, um, uh, make if you electrolyze seawater and then you make sodium and chlorine out of it, then you can take your chlorine and then you can make hydrochloric acid out of it and dispose of the chlorine by injecting it into basaltic rocks, right? Now that would acidify the the rocks, and then presumably would that would have the result of um, uh, of massively speeding up the dissolution process. Yes, but there's another pro problem or issue, right? It's that the carbonates become much more soluble low pH, right? So you have to then put more calcium and more magnesium and more iron oh, in the right. solution okay. so, yeah. in order to make so it. So it's, yeah, it's all very well speeding up the dissolution process, but then you end up with the carbonates that don't form because they need to not be in this alkaline, they need to sort of be a predominantly alkaline formation before they'll form and stabilize. And the more you acidify it, you can get your basalt to dissolve, but you're losing carbonate stability. And that's the price that you're paying for that acidification so you're not you're not getting anywhere that's right and so that's uh yeah i guess that's the same thing as thinking about again the tea kettle right how do we get that carbonate out we put some some acid that we get from waitrose or whatever in there <laughs> to dissolve yeah. it and then that's how it goes right okay yeah so um you, you you've got the you, you want to can you want to be able to control your basalt dissolution but without having the same effect on your carbonate you want to continue so you've got a kind of equilibrium so your sort of seesaw is predominantly tilted towards the carbonate formation and then although adding extra acid would make the the, the basalt side of your seesaw tilt you'd also have a flip side problem that you'd, you'd end up with um uh the the, the carbonate um formation 
it tilts it, it does it tilt evenly or does it tilt disproportionately yeah so carbonate solubility increases more or less exponentially with decreasing ph which is is fair enough because ph is a log scale right so one right, log unit of ph yeah. is, is is one um and what about the effect on the basalts does that change exponentially as well or what yeah so it does change exponentially but you got to get to super low ph in order for that to really happen ph is so low that you can't stay there very long because the basalt will dissolve and make produce alkalinity right and raise the ph back up okay so isn't it that, that, that will equilibrate so you can't you can't make it stay there but the carbonate formation does that just not directly control the acidity and so you you can actually influence the um the speed quite a lot more effectively with carbonate is that correct uh yeah so what you i mean what you can do right so in in like super alkaline ph solutions right uh carbonates are almost entirely insoluble right they're like micromolar levels of calcium or something like that right but it's it's very hard to generate that much alkalinity right and so you're sort of stuck in this zone between like four and a half to a maximum of about eight where the carbonate solubility again is much lower at the four and a half. And if you have it buffered by a supercritical CO2 plume, that's sort of where you're set. And there's very little you can do to, to sort of increase the pH. Okay. So you've got sort of a kind of sweet spot between four and eight pH, and that's where your reaction has to be. So doing smarty pants stuff like injection load of acid <laughs> just takes you out of that range and then ruins your chemistry and nothing works anymore. So there are no real shortcuts. You've, you've either got to put in sort of 40 mountain ranges of water with your one mountain range of CO2, or alternatively, you've got to wait for, you know, possibly 10,000 years for this all to go ahead and do it thing on its own, right? That's, yeah, so those are sort of the end numbers, right? And then somewhere in between those is probably reality. <laughs> yeah. Okay, but, you know, we're, we're not, you know... We, 10,000 years, 2,000 years doesn't make a great deal of difference. You know, you, 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 you're not, you're not going to be tremendously bothered one way or the other. What, you're, what, you, what, what you're worried about is, is it within the lifetime of what you might call sort of human management structures? So if you set up an institution, you can have a reasonably confident guess that that institution is going to be around in, say, 10 years. 100 years, a lot less confident. There aren't many institutions around. And 1,000 years, you know, other than major world religions, pretty much there's nothing that lasts a thousand years on a human time scale. I mean, I'm trying to think of the longest lived human institution is not a religion. Um, yeah, I, I guess Oxford Royal... University, right, doesn't count because it started as a, a religious institute, right? Well, no, I mean, it's not, it's not directly a religion in and of itself, is it? So, um, yeah, I mean, at Oxford and Cambridge University, they've been around sort of since the 1300s or whatever, that, that kind of time scale. So yeah. probably not far wrong thinking of that as, as being the kind of longest institution that we could have any particular degree of confidence of but the problem is you've got a lot of survival bias there'll be a lot of institutions that are around in those eras get you know medieval guilds and stuff like that that aren't around and so you can't just kind of produce these institutions and kind of you know sit and hope you'd, you'd have to have some kind of assurance that the institution that you've created was up to the job and there's no particular way of ensuring that is the case right so you you, you basically can't you, you basically can't do it you have to have a a process or a system that outlasts your um, uh, your institution. Um, if you uh, if you have, yeah. but um, I think to put it in perspective, right? That's like we're already doing that, right? But the CO two that we emit today is is going to be there for that long, uh, and then we're already doing it with things like nuclear waste, right? The nuclear waste that we have is going to be radioactive for that long. So like, it's it's not totally out of the realm of experience for those things to happen, right? No, but I mean, well. 
yes and no. I mean, firstly, the, 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 the question of what to do with nuclear waste is not a, a sociologically solved problem. It's not something that we... No, I agree, you know, but it's we, still, we still have it. <laughs> it's still there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, but, beyond, but beyond that, the, the, the amount of nuclear waste, that, I mean, you're talking, I, I, I don't have a precise idea of, time, of, time, of volumes and stuff like that. But I mean, in terms of high level waste, you're probably looking at, you know, of the order of perhaps 10,000 tons for an industrial duration nuclear um, power program uh, for, for humanity. You know, you're looking at something akin to the size of a small hill for you know, everyone everywhere for the whole time scale that nuclear reactors are likely to be a, a feature of human civilization. You're not talking about 40 mountain ranges, right? So yes, it's a, quality, I, it's I a qualitatively different. It's a qualitatively agree. different storage challenge. You're not, it's but not I think just like, uh, so many of us geoscientists, uh, not myself, but others in the field, right? They were talking about assurances for how long can you safely store nuclear waste. And I think that's the sorts of things that we're trying to talk about and simulate when we're talking about storing CO2, where it's can we assure that it's going to be there or, you know, going to be stable over 10,000 years, 100,000 years, et cetera. Right. So I think that the, I agree that the volumes are much different, but the, the idea of, of long term security is, is similar. Yeah, I, I get it. But, but, but just to, you know, repeat the key point, what I'm saying is it's not. It's not just a count difference, is it? Moving from, you know, one to ten thousand is not a difference of, you know, it's a difference of like five orders of magnitude or whatever. You can't count the number of orders of magnitude. But the, the point I'm making is that the, the, you, the processes and your costs and everything like that are just incomparable between the two of them. It's not one is not just a larger version of the other. It's a it's, it's a fundamentally different thing, right? Um, and that's you know that's the that's the point I'm making in terms of you know what um how how we might engineer this we, we, it's just not done with a kind of finesse um you know you're talking about something like much more like making coke cans than you are cutting diamonds right so um that the, the scales are completely incomparable now um it, I, I think i've got you know the, the gist of what you're saying so let me just repeat back to you the key points that you, you've got across to me so we can in at small scales, and if we inject a load of water with the carbon dioxide, we can get pretty much astonishingly fast reactions to the point at which there's no real um, worry or social cost or damage associated with storing carbon once you've actually got it into the hole. The issue is not about that. The, the issue is that um, once you start storing very large amounts of carbon dioxide, you then have a fundamentally different problem in that the amounts of water that you would have to inject to, to replicate that process at scale become not completely impossible, but, but form a fundamental limitation on the process. And so if you're, you're either got to do some fancy pants ideas, so you're sort of, you're, you're wetting the rocks and then continually injecting the CO2 into the water reservoir that you've created in these rocks, or alternatively you are, um, doing some other equivalent method um, that, that relies not on having a wet reaction but you're relying on a very very slow transfer of co2 which is a really kind of quite quali qualitatively different process to the one that carb fix are offering so it's not um your, your ultimately reaction is the same but because your solvent chemistry is completely different you you, you have a, a fundamentally different approach where you're relying on very 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 slow reactions because you're waiting for this huge queue of 
carbon dioxide molecules to dissolve into this tiny pool of water. And, and that process is very, very slow and potentially could become slower as the rock porosity and morphology changes due to the reactions that you've incepted within it, right? That's the, that's the sort of fundamental thrust of your argument. Is that correct? Yeah, so that, and, and then again, also the final point being that at these high partial pressures of CO2, the carbonates are much more soluble. So you're, although they precipitate quickly, you need to dissolve more basalt to make the same amount of carbonate because they're so much more soluble. Okay, run that one past me again. So the, 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 so what, what, what is it that's governing that change? So if you have a large supercritical CO2 plume, then yep. the partial pressure of CO2 in the water is buffered, right? If you don't, right, and the sort of the CO2 uh, that you inject with it is it, you know, and then there's no extra CO2 to dissolve, then, then slowly the partial pressure decreases or, or rapidly decreases, right? But if you have this large bubble, essentially, of CO2 in the subsurface, then all of the water touching that CO2 is at that partial pressure of CO2, right? So when you're at that partial pressure of CO2, you're more towards like four and a half and it's very hard for a pH to climb because you have such a large bubble of CO2 uh, holding you down, holding the pH down. So why does this, oh, oh, oh right, okay. So the, let me explain, let me try and explain, but I only kind of half got that. So I might screw this up when I explain it back to you. So what you're saying is that when the water is surrounded by loads and loads and loads of CO2, then as your CO2 reacts, because you've got this queue of new CO2 waiting to come and take the place of anything that dissolves out, your pH is very stable. And so you don't end up losing. So although this stuff lasts, it might take, you know, potentially 10,000 years to, to go through that process. You don't end up with um, the reaction chemistry screwing up during that time because the um, reaction um, pH is inherently fundamentally very well controlled. So as the pH falls, the basalt dissolves a bit quicker and then the pH will rise. Um, uh, 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 the, so the, hang on, let me get this right. I don't think I've got that right, have I? So the pH... So once you get that bubble oxygen. of CO2 there, it wants the pH to be, you know, and, and there's some alkalinity in the seawater or generated by the basalt. The pH wants to yeah. be in that four to four and a half range, right? And, and so it's no, so sort of no matter stabilizing in that range, yeah, right? It's it's and that's what we call buffered, right? The pH is basically buffered there, and it has no chance to increase and make the carbonates again much more insoluble, right? So it's they're always in this sort of high solubility regime. Okay, because because of the amount of carbon dioxide that's queuing up to dissolve. So as the basalt dissolves in the more acid, it then makes the water less acid, and then as it becomes less acid, the carbonate, um, uh, the, the carbon dioxide dissolves more into the water, makes it a bit more acid, and you've got this continual sort of toing and froing process that eventually results in, you know, all your basalt getting used up and all your CO two getting used up, and whichever one runs out first it stops. But you, while while you've got that kind of situation in the middle where um where things are sort of nicely dissolving it it, it will maintain its ph as a sort of self-sustaining buffered system right that's right yeah and, and we okay. show in the paper as i think it's figure two in the paper that like you know you you start really low right if you have just seawater but like once you react a little bit of basalt uh then the ph is more or less pegged at that four and a half right okay. and then you can't do much more than that so you, you've, you've talked me through the science and the results but just briefly, because I'm aware that we've been on for quite a while now. Um, 
how do you actually do the research? I mean, are you doing it on a, in a sort of bottle experiment? Are you doing it on a supercomputer? How do you actually establish what you've shown to be the case? So we do all of that stuff. We do experiments. We do um, high pressure temperature experiments. We do experiments with actual cores of basalt that have been recovered from these places where people- That's a lot for it. one paper. I and and I was going to say, and, and in, in this paper, we do none of that. We do very, very simple simulations. And that's, I guess, the point of this paper is just a very simple concept of what, what, um, what we should expect, right? And then all of this- I'm glad, I'm, glad you, I'm glad you said that because I started to feel a bit <laughs> inadequate that you've done you know, all of these different experiments and put it into one paper. And I was like thinking about, oh, I don't do any of that when I write a paper. But yeah, I did, I did that for one of my PhD thesis chapters and it's so long that nobody will ever read it. So <laughs> I don't do that anymore, fortunately. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, so, so when you say very simple, it doesn't sound very simple to me. So talk me through exactly what you did to establish this. Right. So we went to the literature and got a um, the kinetic rate constants, essentially, for the dissolution rates of primary minerals of basalt. So in this case, we're talking about plagioclase, clinopyroxene, and olivine. And yeah. so we got the rate constants for those. We then started with seawater, bottom seawater, or actually aquifer fluids in this case. So from that have been sampled from um, the Juan de Fuca plate, Cascadia Basin, just west of Canada here. So, so hang on, so slow down a bit. So the, <laughs> sure. where are these places and what was the minerals? You said olivine and something else. What was the something else? Uh, so olivine, clinopyroxene, and... Clinopyroxene. So what's clinopyroxene? Never heard of it. Is that another made-up geologist? <laughs> You're just putting in for a joke, aren't you? You're going to come back to your mates down the pub after and say, I managed to convince him that three minerals were real and none <laughs> of them are. Yeah, no, I wouldn't do that. Uh, it's in the paper, you can see. <laughs> so clinopyroxene is... Uh, is a pyroxene that's so there's orthopyroxene and clinopyroxene. Clinopyroxene occurs in basalts. So, so what's a pyroxene? Pyroxene is, and I think you, Brett, oh, pi, 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 pyroxene. Pyroxene, yeah. You, you yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, that. I've heard of them. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, so it's a mineral that's uh, it's a silicate mineral. It's got more silicon in it than olivine. Um, and it tends to have calcium, iron, and magnesium as its cations. Yeah. And does it does it form in very high temperatures? Is that right? Yeah, it's so it forms in the basalt. So it's it's a primary mineral of basalt. Okay, fine. Um, right. And then um, where are the places that you talked about? So the one, the place that solid carbon, the, the, the group that I'm a part of is studying most actively is in Cascadia Basin. So just west of Canada in the northeastern Pacific Ocean, where we have Ocean Networks Canada has a cabled array. So we have fiber optic cables going out to the, the plate. And also the International Ocean Drilling Program, or now it's called the International Ocean Discovery Program, has drilled multiple boreholes into the crust. So we have samples of not only the basalt, but also the water um, that is in the basalt. Okay, right. Um, okay, well, look, I've got a fair idea of what you're up to and what you've done. Um, it's good to get an understanding of, you know, something that I think was a bit of a mystery to me and probably many other people before um, you... Uh, uh, spoke to us and I, I think the key takeaway lesson is that you're saying that as you um, are looking to uh, increase the scale of this you necessarily have to change the way or it looks like it's necessary to change the chemistry because you go from aqueous um, uh, environment sort of water water assisted chemistry to, to a non-water assisted chemistry and that's you know a key transition you're suddenly going up uh, or, you, you, you're, or you're using that to try and reduce by um, between one and two orders of magnitude, the amount of material that you've got to move to solve 
you know, to address the climate, I wouldn't say solve the climate change problem, that's a bit of a bold claim, but to address the climate change problem, you've got to move you know, four, roughly 40 times as much material if you do it the carb fix way than if you did it in a different way. That's the kind of key takeaway. And, you're, and as a result of that change, you've got um, you know, many orders of magnitude increase in the timescales involved. So that, do you think that's a good summary? Yeah, it's a good summary. I, I don't know about what many orders of magnitude needs. Let's just say it, it'll take longer. We just but don't. It's know the su- it's the subject of further research. That's right. That's what you'll, we're doing. You will keep you keep keep your um yourself in um grant money for a good few years, uh, finding out the the answers to the questions that you posed in this paper. That's right. It's like it's like making a TV series. You want to you sort of leave it on a cliffhanger, and so that people have got to come back next week, right? So we <laughs> sounds will, good. We will, we will um, want to see uh, the next episode of your what happens to carbon dioxide when you blow it down a hole in the ground. So I can't really think of anything wrong that you've done. Um, so I'm just going to arbitrarily reject your paper on the grounds that I don't believe that the minerals that you're telling me about exist. I think that you and all geologists are just making up names for stuff. So that's my entirely spurious reason for rejecting my paper, but rejecting it is what I've done. So thank you very much for coming on the show. Um, I'm sure it will be as interesting to um, other people um, as it is was to me. It's certainly a really important part of how we're going to solve the climate change problem in the long term. So thank you for coming on and enlightening us. Yeah, thank you very much for inviting me. And I just just before I sign off, I'd like to say thank you to the Pacific Institute of Climate Solutions and the National Science and Engineering Research Council of Canada for, for funding this research. A word from your sponsors. Yes, right. exactly. Thank you very much. Thank you.